Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20, plus you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. The area of Mossbank has been used extensively by the indigenous of Canada. Dating back centuries, the Blackfoot and the Cree both occupied the territory, which was highly prized due to the vast bison herds that moved through the area. The Ojibwa also occupied the area through the centuries. Those bison herds provided the indigenous with many of the things they needed in their day-to-day lives, including food and materials for clothing and shelter. The nearby Old Wives Lake also gets its name from the indigenous. There are several oral traditions that detail where the name came from. According to the Cree, around 1840, a band of Cree hunters followed bison into Blackfoot territory and made camp at the lake. A few Blackfoot scouts showed up and the Cree believed a larger war party was going to attack the next day. Since the Cree were traveling with their wives and children as well as their possessions, they could not safely leave the area before the Blackfoot returned in the morning. The older women volunteered to stay behind and tend fires to fool the Blackfoot into believing the camp was not abandoned. The men, young women, and children, using this diversion, fled back to the Kapal Valley. The Blackfoot arrived the next morning and killed the old women. From that day forward, it is said that the spirits of the old women live on the island in the lake, and their laughter is carried on the wind to taunt the Blackfoot that killed them. Interestingly, Old Wives Lake, for a time, had the name of Johnston Lake, which came from Sir Frederick Johnston. He was a British politician who sat in the British House of Commons from 1874 to 1885. He was also close friends with the Prince of Wales, who would go on to become Edward VII. Johnston was a trophy hunter who came to Canada in the 1880s where he would hunt bison. The name change remained in place until 1955 when the government restored the Old Wives Lake name. Old Wives Lake is also very important when it comes to the migratory birds as well. In 1987, 64,392 shorebirds were counted as part of a survey. On March 9, 1925, a migratory bird sanctuary was established at the lake, and in April 1997, the Western Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network named it as one of the most important inland sites for migratory birds in North America. Due to the weather patterns in the area of the Palliser Triangle, 
Old Wives Lake has also dried up twice in its history, once in 1937 and once in 1988. Since Old Wives Lake is a shallow, salty lake, it would bring an industry to future Moss Bank that would be important for decades. A sodium sulfate plant would be opened in Moss Bank, and in 1954, it was purchased by the Saskatchewan Minerals, becoming one of the most important plants for the organization. As for the bison, when they began to disappear due to the overhunting by settlers, the indigenous would be forced to sign treaties to receive government rations and live on reserves. Today, Moss Bank sits on Treaty 4 land. The area of Moss Bank played a very large role in an iconic event in Canadian history. In 1874, as the newly created Northwest Mounted Police were on their famous march west to the prairies, the first meeting between the Indigenous and the Northwest Mounted Police would happen at Moss Bank. At a camp that was set up along the Wood River near Old Wives Lake, a group of Sioux refugees approached the camp, having come from Minnesota after they lost their lands there. It was their hope that the British government would give them a sanctuary. The Northwest Mounted Police agreed to meet with them the next day. And on the next day, over 100 men, women, and children came into the Northwest Mounted Police camp and participated in a formal ceremony and informal training that lasted for several days. For the Northwest Mounted Police, they wanted to have a positive impression with the Indigenous as this was the first group they had met and they would be interacting with the Indigenous a lot in the coming months and years. In 2009, the first Old Wives Lake Festival was held in Moss Bank to celebrate this first meeting and included reenactors for the ceremony. By the early 1880s, surveyors were coming to the area to begin planning out the railroad and a town site. While the railroad and the telegraph were both being built through the area, the Moss Bank District would not open to settlers until 1907, but as soon as it did, settlement quickly began. A homesteader named Robert Jolly, who had come from Scotland, would give the community the name of Moss Bank when he established a post office on his property. A branch of the railroad was built through future Moss Bank in 1912, quickly bringing the community into existence. And Moss Bank quickly began to grow as a service center for the farming district. By 1916, Moss Bank had a population of 164 people. Five years later, 303 people called the community home. In 1917, the Moss Bank Fire Hall was built to provide the community with fire protection and save the many beautiful structures that were found there. The fire hall was used until 1976 when a new facility was built. In 1920, the hall had a small holding cell added, and the local constable and RCMP officer would use the cell to house prisoners until 1966. As well, the fire bell was used during the Spanish flu to warn residents that the curfew was in effect and everyone had to go home. Sadly, the building is no longer there and has been demolished to build the Furrows and Faith Retirement Villa. The fire bell still remains there, though, as a symbol of the fire history of the town. While the fire hall is gone, a firewall still stands between the Bent Nail Cafe and Ivan Costley's shop and is the last of its kind in the entire province of Saskatchewan. In 1920, a blacksmith shop and residence was built in Mossbank. Eight years later, it was bought by Frank Ambrose, a Polish immigrant who would operate the shop for the next 60 years as the community and the country changed around him. During its operation, Ambrose would do everything from shoeing horses, repairing farm equipment, and even crafting items for the Royal Canadian Air Force. The amazing thing about this building is that it still stands to this day and is believed to be the oldest known, fully furnished blacksmith shop still in its original site in all of Saskatchewan. 
This shop, with its residence and six outbuildings, remains a rare example of a 1920s family business complex in Saskatchewan. The original blacksmithing tools used by Ambrose are still found on site as well, and due to its heritage and importance in the community, it was made a provincial heritage property in 2003. The Ambrose site, as well as a 1921 wood frame country schoolhouse and an early 20th century wood frame cottage type residence, are now part of the Mossbangan District Museum. The school had been used from 1921 to 1943 before it was moved to Mossbank, and it served as the RM office until 1979. The home was used by Frank and Mary Ambrose from 1940 until Mary left the house in 1990. The entire site would be made a municipal heritage property in 1995. I'll talk more about the Great Museum in Mossbank a little later. The Great Depression was a tough time for Saskatchewan, which nearly became a third world country due to the impact of the Depression on the citizens. That being said, many community residents would come together to help each other, and that was seen on August 6, 1930, when the citizens of Mossbank decided to improve the town by getting to work repairing Main Street. The cost of fixing the street was more than the community could afford so residents took care of it themselves. All the machinery and horses for the project were donated, and many people volunteered their time over the course of 10 days to grade Main Street. A loading platform was established at the gravel pit to the north, and there was a constant stream of trucks bringing in gravel to fix Main Street and other streets in the community. Roughly one kilometer of gravel was spread across the street, costing $1,000, far below what it would have cost the town to do the project. Cash subscriptions were also used to pay for half the cost, which would have been about $5,000 from a contractor. When war was declared in 1939, the British Commonwealth mobilized and one of the most important ways Canada contributed to the war effort was serving as the base of operations for the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. This plan, which was a huge undertaking, cost $1.6 billion and employed 104,000 Canadians across 107 schools and other facilities in 231 locations across Canada. By the end of the war, 167,000 students, among them 50,000 pilots, had been trained in the program. Mossbank was one such site for pilots. Between 1940 and 1944, 6,241 men from four nations came to the number two bombing and gunnery school. Troops there came as pilots and trained in bombing and gunnery. At the base, 2,200 people were employed, and the school was one of only 11 bombing and gunnery schools in Canada. Only the school in Jarvis, Ontario had more personnel than Mossbank did. One reason that Mossbank was chosen was the wide open area around it and Old Wives Lake, which could be used for target practice. Eventually, when the war ended, the base was decommissioned and the buildings on the site were sold and moved. One building became the Turvey Centre in Regina, and another is part of the Western Development Museum in North Battleford. Other buildings from the base that were moved into Mossbank itself include the buildings that are now home to the Skates and Skirts, Mossbank Child Care Services, and the Golf Course Clubhouse. The base would have a long-term impact on Mossbank beyond the buildings as well. By 1966, the community had 596 residents thanks to its close proximity to the airbase. One of the most iconic moments in Saskatchewan's history would occur in Mossbank on May 20, 1957. It was on that day that over 1,000 people came out in the rain to the Mossbank Community Hall to witness a debate that would pass into provincial legend. The debate was between Premier Tommy Douglas and Ross Thatcher, 
a former colleague who had now become an adversary to the Premier and eventually would become Premier himself. Thatcher had left the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation Party in 1955 and joined the Liberal Party. He then began to attack Douglas by calling the Crown Corporations created by Douglas's party a dismal failure. Thatcher chose to have the debate in Mossbank, which had always been a Liberal stronghold during the 1957 federal election. Reporters from across Canada came out to the debate, and it was also broadcast live on the radio so thousands of Canadians could listen in. Throughout the debate, Thatcher and Douglas argued over whether or not the Crown Corporations had been a success or failure. In the audience, which was split evenly between CCF and Liberal supporters, many people heckled or applauded depending on who was speaking. Both men conducted themselves well in the debate, and the debate helped Thatcher raise his profile in the province, and he would eventually become Premier of Saskatchewan thanks to this debate. The Regina Leader Post reported, quote, There was no clear winner officially, and it may be doubtful if a single vote was changed in the community hall where it was held, either for or against Douglas or the erstwhile maverick Thatcher. But the fact emerged as the debate wore on and the partisan capacity crowd in the opera house like Hall cheered, booed, that unexpectedly Thatcher was holding his own. End quote. opponent got up in the House of Commons and told the people of Canada, and it was printed in almost every paper in this dominion, that the Crown Corporations were a dismal failure. Now, what I want to know is, if in 1949, 9% was a pretty good return, how come in 1956, 14% is a dismal failure? And after 12 years of experimentation, I suggest that three questions should be posed and considered by the people of Saskatchewan tonight. First of all, have the Crown Corporations been able to operate efficiently? Secondly, has the government, because of the program, been able to provide a substantial number of jobs, additional jobs for Saskatchewan citizens in manufacturing industry? Thirdly, have the Crown Corporations made revenue available to the provincial treasury? which he could use for social services, highways, school grants, etc. But the Liberal Party makes a great deal of fuss about these three small crown corporations. What do they represent? They represent four-fifths of one percent of the total amount of money which the Saskatchewan people have invested in crown corporations. But I say that any of them who do fail still didn't cost the people of Saskatchewan a red cent. And I'll tell you why. And yet the activities of the tannery were ill-fated and short-lived. About the only hides they tanned were the hides of the Saskatchewan taxpayer. <laughs> when all the smoke had cleared away, that company had a deficit as nearly as I can ascertain of roughly $200,000. One company up, one company down. My opponent has been going around this constituency, particularly in places that are not covered by the press. He's been saying, saying that he knows things about people inside the CCF. And that he has photostatic copies of private files from the ICMP, which show... 
that there are is a CCFMLA who had an association with the Communist Party. A shoe factory was set up in 1945 to utilize the leather, which was made in the tanning factory. What are the facts pertaining to the shoe factory? The shoe factory did lose money. So much so that in 1948 it closed down after having accumulated deficits of more than $82,000. Two companies up, two companies down. I am saying here, Mr. Speaker, that on order, that instead of discussing this in private, in some private corner of the constituency, I'm inviting the liberal candidate to put this photostatic copy of a confidential file of the RCMP on this table. In 2003, a reenactment of the debate was held with 600 people coming out to two sold-out performances where they were encouraged to heckle and cheer as the audience had in 1957. Today, the debate is known as the debate of the century. The Moss Bank and District Museum is considered one of the best local museums in the entire province. Within the museum, there are two large murals that document the history of the British Commonwealth air training plan in the community, while the second mural shows Old Wives Lake during the time of the Indigenous. The museum features tools used by the Indigenous before Europeans arrived, as well as a plane that was built and flown by Cecil Goddard, a local farmer who built dozens of aircraft over the course of his life. There are also several artifacts in the museum from the history of Mossbank in the early 20th century, and artifacts from the days when Mossbank was an important training spot for the Commonwealth pilots during the Second World War. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Mossbank, Saskatchewan. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.